Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Page 7 of your order of worship, the passages I'll be preaching from. Let me uh, return uh, to Will's admonition of the Christmas Eve service. I, I know this is, is my favorite service of the year. I know it is for so many of you, and we are so sad not to be packed into this room together. But I do want you uh, to take that seriously. Gather your family. Um, maybe consider inviting uh, someone who's alone um, to join you. You know, follow the protocols, but um, and then I would also say, um, more than any year, this is absolutely the easiest year to invite someone to join you for um, your Christmas Eve service. All you got to do is send them a link, and uh, the service is is very much a beautiful display that I think anybody, unchurched, dechurched, unbelievers, I think anybody would find it at least beautiful, and my homily certainly uh, bears that in mind. So invite someone. The other thing I would say, um, you you do see the instructions for year-end giving there, Um, and I know we only have a few few days left in the year. Let me just be as transparent as possible with you as far as where we are with budget. Um, We, uh, the Lord blessed us this year in a year where there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear of how that's going to work out. Uh, we, we absolutely, your generosity continued, the Lord provided, and because we were able to cut back on expenses, um, we were able to finish the fiscal year in the black, which we praise the Lord for. Um, however, we did not make our uh, budgeted goal, we, our, our, our giving for what we wanted from last year, we, we were not able to make, um, but again, that, we, we, we offset that with expenses. Um, but because of that, the session voted to, to have a flat budget. Uh, this year, to not increase the budget at all and challenge our congregation to this year meet that goal. And I know we're at the beginning of the fiscal year, but the reason why I'm saying it now is because the end of the year uh, giving goes a long way to whether that's realistic for us to meet that goal. So as you are praying and considering about your end of the year donations, I I do want to pastorally ask you to consider to uh, give above and beyond uh, to your local church so that uh, we can indeed make uh, our budget this year and continue on uh, with the ministries and the good work that the Lord is doing. The instructions to do that there, of course, are in your bulletin. Okay, page 7. Matthew 1, 18 through 20, and Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. Is with man, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The word of the Lord. Father, you were so faithful in the first service to visit us with your presence, with your word, with your application, with your comfort, with your hope. I, I pray that you would do the same uh, this, this second service, Lord. Uh, As we pick up this passage, this idea of your advent and what it means to reconcile us back to the God for whom we were made, I pray that the way you are now present, we long for the day of revelation. We long for when we will be with you face to face. But until then, you are with us now by your spirit. And so would your spirit be at work in all of our lives, wherever we are, wherever you find us, would you be at work with a word to us? Lord, we humbly submit to the infallible word and the infallible work of your Holy Spirit. Would you use me? Would you strengthen me? Would you give me what I need to faithfully feed your people this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to the final Sunday of our Advent series. And the long-expected Savior, this long expectation that Advent requires of us... Um, And what we've done each week is certainly celebrated the first advent of Jesus, no doubt. But also, each sermon ended with a longing gaze toward his return. What's going on is I'm trying to make use of this historic moment of restlessness to tap into the spiritual restlessness that advent is supposed to bring into our lives. And what I've tried to do uh, with my sermon is choose... Um, unconventional themes of Advent that tend to get overlooked. So in week one, it was retribution. And we looked about what the coming of Jesus meant and will mean for Satan. Last week, it was redemption. And we looked at what the coming of Jesus meant and will mean for our healing. This week, it's reconciliation. And we're going to explore what the coming of Jesus means and will mean for our return, our reconciled return into the presence of our God. At the very beginning of COVID, uh, coming up on a year from now, when things started to shut down, there were multiple opinion pieces being written in newspapers and on the internet and blogs, uh, predicting that the, the pandemic would usher in a fundamental change to society. The argument was that we would see the power of technology, and realize that much of societal life is unnecessary. Do we really need office spaces? 
Do we really need in-person education? Do we really need to fly across the country for a business meeting when a Zoom call can do? Do we really need conferences? Do we really need movie theaters? Do we really need in-person church services? The prediction was that what would happen because of the pandemic is we would recognize how we can accomplish these things within the comfort of our own homes and they would quickly become obsolete. Around the same time, I wrote um, an opinion piece that predicted that the opposite would happen. Um, grounded in the conviction of the Imago Dei, the image of God, that we were created for relationships. I, I, uh, I argued that our desire for these things that we took for granted and maybe even called inconveniences at one point would only deepen. The office meeting we used to dread, we would long for. Kids who hated going to school would be begging to go back to school. The trend of online worship experience that was already kind of taking place before COVID, I predicted would actually reverse when we were forced to do it, and that Christians would long to be back in an actual church building once again. Well, I hate to say, but I was right. I don't know, Will's thinking, he doesn't hate to say that, he loves to say that. I was right. Is there anybody, anybody at this point who likes Zoom? Is there anybody left? Is there anybody on the planet who wants a future of Zoom calls? I said that in the first service, and uh, a little, as Kip is, he's my, he's my Owen's age, he's eight-year-old, a little eight-year-old boy over here screamed, no! <laughs> and he's right. We're done. We hate it. I hate it. I do it because it's necessary, but I can't stand it. I know there are concerns being promulgated by the internet about the vaccine. I am definitely not going to let this sermon get hijacked by that debate. As for me, you do your thing, not biting conscience. As for me, I'm taking it. I know there's fears about what's in it. Um, the craziest one I've seen on the internet is there's a microchip in it. I mean, I, let me, you could insert an iPhone into my skin, and I would take that thing as long as it meant I can get back to life as normal. I am so ready for this to be over. Friends, we are longing. We are starving. In some cases, we are dying to be in the unrestrained, unfearful, unmasked, non-social distant presence of people. And that's because we were made that way. In our core, we are relational beings made for a relationship with each other and more so made for a relationship with our God. You know what the history of the fallen world is? A quarantine from God's presence. God's presence is deadly, eternally deadly reality for sinful humanity. And so... He has removed his immediate presence from us. And all of humanity, whether you know it or not, all of humanity is restlessly starving to return to God. Augustine famously said it this way, Thou hast made us for thyself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. We are a restless species, pining after the presence of God for whom we are made. Well, the advent of Jesus on an ultimate level 
is about reconciling God to man once again. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in two ways. Reconciliation inaugurated, reconciliation consummated. Let's begin with the first advent and the inauguration of his reconciling work. Before we get to Matthew 1, let's set the scene historically speaking. This is important. I want to go all the way back to the beginning, um, our Old Testament reading. The the Garden of Eden is depicted in Scripture as... um, a culture of perfection. That's what all the imagery in Genesis is about. And at the center of its perfection was this profound experience. God was with man. Eden was paradise because God was in Eden. Listen to verse 8 of our Old Testament reading. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Is that not astounding? Humanity's greatest joy, highest glory, deepest delight was a part of their daily routine as commonplace to them as their morning cup of coffee. Oh, there's, there's God. Good morning, God. It's astounding. The access, the intimacy that was available to them. Now, perhaps you're saying to yourself, well, wait a minute. What's the big deal with that? Well, the big deal is that you are made by God for God. Humanity's greatest need is the presence of God. We have this unquenchable desperation for God's presence, and we had it. Humanity had their God. Unrestricted, unrestrained access to the lover of our souls. Now let me continue on verse 8 and read some of the most tragic words ever written. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. They now are trying to escape the very thing they were made for. They fear what should be their delight. What has happened? They've sinned, and they are no longer fit for the presence of God. It's a funny thing about God. His presence is either man's greatest delight or greatest dread. To those fit for God's glory, His presence is the satisfaction of their greatest longings. To those who fall short of God's glory, and the bad news, the Bible says we all do fall short of God's glory, His presence is the realization of our greatest fears. To the righteous, God is all satisfying. To the unrighteous, God is all terrifying. There is no in-between. And so with one transgression, their disposition toward God's presence has been fundamentally altered, and it has been ever since for humanity. Now, do you know what God does next? It's, it's truly an act of mercy, though on the surface it may appear not to be so. What he does is he quarantines. God severs his presence from creation. He splits heaven and earth. He casts them out of Eden into the wilderness that is the fallen world as we know it. Out of sheer mercy, he removes his immediate presence from sinners, hiding his face from fallen humanity so as to spare them the ruin of his glory and holiness. So is that it? Humanity handed over to a quarantined existence apart from God's presence, forever starved of the very thing our soul needs? Well, something interesting starts to take place as the story progresses. It would appear 
that God is pursuing us once again, attempting to restore what was compromised in Eden. Occasionally, for example, occasionally, he shows up in socially distant, veiled forms to patriarchs like Abraham and Moses. And then he gives his people, once he has his people of his, of his own, he gives them instructions to build a tabernacle, which means dwelling place, so that God's people could actually dwell, so that God could actually dwell with his people. But his presence is relegated to the Holy of Holies, a central room where the highest ranking priest one day of year, clothed in um, holy garments, which acted as, to continue the illustration, which acted as kind of hazmat suits of sorts, was allowed to enter in to glimpse God's presence one day a year. And then eventually they built a permanent house for God, the temple. And that temple had its own holy of holies, but still... God's presence relegated to that one inner sanctum. So it would seem that God is somehow seeking to reconcile his people to his presence, but it's just so incomplete. From the Garden of Eden, where humanity received unhindered access into the fullness of God's presence, to a temple with one room that once a year one person was allowed a glimpse... Well, the prophet Isaiah makes an announcement that would stir an expectation of reconciliation that went way beyond a socially distant God. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is Hebrew for God with us. The prophetic expectation is that a virgin will give birth to a son and that this son will be God with us, the presence of God with us. Now, with that background, let's look at our passage from Matthew 1. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We've already looked at that part of this, of this passage in another Advent sermon. But now, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Meaning, he's here. Or more specifically, God is here. This Jesus is the very presence of God clothed in flesh. And therein lies the significance of the virgin shall conceive. The virgin shall conceive is an important part that we take for granted. But what's with the virgin birth after all? Meaning, why didn't the Son of God just show up like the angels show up? Well, there are many reasons why the incarnation was necessary. But one of the overlooked ones is that sinful humanity couldn't handle the unveiled presence of the Son of God. I mean, listen, in Luke 2, when the angel shows up, and really any time an angel shows up in Scripture, it says that they're terrified by the glory of an angel. Could you imagine if the second person of the Trinity showed up in the splendor of his glory and holiness? It would be our ruin. So how can we have Emmanuel? How can we have God with us without God being with us being our destruction? Well, we already sang it this morning. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate. Incarnate means embodied in flesh. 
Hail the embodied in flesh deity. A living, breathing, embodied in flesh tabernacle of God's presence. Where what we behold is simultaneously like us, therefore we can behold it, and nothing like us. This is the significance of the virgin conception. Conception, I want to tell you this, conception is the union of two such that what is conceived is not one half one party and the other half the other. It is a synthesis, a fusion of the two, such that what is conceived is the fullest expression of both. Okay? Well, if the baby is, as we say in the creed and as we read in the passage, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, then this baby is the fullness of God and man. Not half God and half man, fully God, fully man, or as we just sang, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Now, this is all great. But is it truly reconciliation between God and man? Well, his incarnation was not an end in itself. It was a means to a greater end. In other words, Jesus didn't come just so that the world could experience God's presence for a few years. Some few lucky people in history got to experience God's presence in Jesus for a few years. Jesus came so that the world might fully and forever be reconciled back to the presence of God. There's a fascinating conversation at the end of Jesus' life. You've heard it many times. Preached on it before. From John 14, one of the most intimate conversations recorded in the Gospels. But listen now to these familiar words with everything I've said thus far and see if they don't take on um, a more profound meaning. So he's about to leave them and he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Now remember the Old Testament temple, which was the house of God, where there was only one room where his presence dwelt and only one person once a year was allowed to enter into it. Now listen to Jesus' promise. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to be with me. Where I am, you may also be. In my first coming, you have tasted God's presence. In my second coming, you'll have a room in God's temple. And you will dwell with me and my Father forever. One of his disciples asked a good question. How's that going to happen? How could we ever dwell in the house of the Lord? I want to be there so badly, but how will we get there? What, in other words, what is the way to the house? Jesus responds, I am the way. The truth, the life. No one comes to the Father's presence. No one gets to be with the Father except through me. So Jesus is not just God with us. Jesus is the means to us with God. Now, why is Jesus the exclusive way into God's presence? Because Jesus is the only one who can make us fit again for God's presence. Only the Savior, only His cross, only His sacrifice, only His gospel, only His righteousness can ready us again to experience unhindered access into the glory of God's presence. And that is what He has come to do. Make it possible for sinners to be with God again. And it would cost Him. When Emmanuel was upon the cross, these were the words he shouted. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which translated means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Forsaken. It's a loaded word. Considering all that we've said thus far. 
forsaken. Can you answer his question? Why was Jesus forsaken of God? So that we might regain the presence of God. He was cast off that we might be brought in. Rejected that we might be received. Unwanted that we might be welcome. He, he bore the abandonment of the fall in order to restore again the hospitality of Eden. Jesus didn't die so that you could merely escape the judgment of God. He died that you might be reconciled to God. The end of Christ's salvation is reunion of humanity and God, restoring what was lost in Genesis 3 and what human souls have been ravenous at for ever since, God's presence. So let's do what we've done every week this Advent. Let's indulge the dream of what shall be. Having seen reconciliation inaugurated in the first coming of Jesus, now let's look at reconciliation consummated in the return of Jesus, Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the earth had passed away, the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen here, Behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Impossible to miss. Reiterated four times in one verse. Four times in four different ways a loud voice proclaims God and man are together again. The presence of God, which was compromised at the beginning of Genesis, has been restored at the end of Revelation. What Adam and Eve once enjoyed, you, believer in Jesus, will soon have and never lose. And if you're not a believer in Jesus... All I can say is your soul is going to ravenously seek through this world, searching for God, looking for love in all the wrong places, as the song says, until you come home to the presence of God. I want to stir our longings for that moment by asking a question. Here is my dilemma. It feels like such an abstract future. So what I wanted to do is I want to ask a question that's more concrete that we can relate to that will stir our longings for what is to come. And here it is. What are you most looking forward to when this pandemic is over? Whether by a vaccine or or, or some other discovery, whatever it is, when the moment comes and we all agree this is no longer a threat, what are you most looking forward to? The kids were talking about that yesterday, last night. They said, I got an idea. Let's throw the biggest play date ever. Each of us invites every single friend we have over and just pack the house with friends. That was their answer, not my answer. That's, that's not my answer to what I'm looking forward to. <laughs> what would it be for you? Would it be as many grandkids as you can fit in your lap for one big group hug? Would it be a packed party of your closest friends where you just stay up late into the night just laughing till it hurts? Would it be a full sanctuary? of worshiping souls, the choir, again? Would it be the simple joy of a firm handshake and a hug for a greeting? Would it be things you took for granted like a packed movie theater or stadium? Would it be a date night at your favorite restaurant inside 
with full seating, surrounded by that lovely restaurant noise of conversation and laughter of other people enjoying themselves. What are you most looking forward to? Now take that very real, concrete, relatable answer and stand in awe at this amazing thought. Those moments, as amazing as they are, they are but a tiny, little, fleeting foretaste that pales in comparison to what is waiting for us in Revelation 21. Whatever that is that you imagined, you're going to experience that only with your God. You're going to get to see God face to face. Can you believe that? You're going to get to say thank you in person to Jesus. You're going to get to say thank you for dying for me. And this even struck me more this week. You're going to get to hear him say to you, you're so welcome, Robert. I can't wait to hear him say my name in his voice and say I was glad to do it. He's going to hug you. His actual hands with those actual scars are going to heal you and wipe your tears. You're going to feast with him. You're going to share heavenly wine. You're going to stay up late into the night laughing until it hurts with Jesus. And best of all, it's never going to end. Brothers and sisters, we are not dealing in fantasy. That's about to happen to you soon. You, with God, forevermore is coming. Until then, let's keep on longing. Let me pray. Lord, how can we stir our affections and hopes and dreams without wanting it to happen now? And so, yes, we collectively pray that it would happen. We do pray, come, Lord Jesus, hasten the day of your reconciliation. But until then, we do bless you for this sacrament that promises a taste of what is to come. We, we want the banquet. We want the feast. We want the fullness of heavenly wine. But now, Lord, we trust that in this small cracker and juice, you do meet us in a mysterious way. And so remember your promises. Give us a taste of heaven this morning and leave us with our hearts certain and longing for what is to come when we get our God for whom we love. In Jesus' name, amen.